Well, let's get started and see if the uh, the remnant that deserted us comes back or not. They may be a mess of friends. A um, couple of announcements uh, as we begin. First of all, all of the lectures in every seminar, as far as I know, are being put on a website called audioverse.org. Audioverse.org. How many of you are familiar with this already? Audioverse.org. You can download the audio files. Those of you who want my notes... Um, you can download those by going to the Amazing Facts website and then going to afco.com, A-F-C-O-E.com, and then they'll ask you to register, which is no big deal. I mean, they're not going to turn you into the, uh, to, the, uh, to another denomination or anything. Um, and then uh, you can go to a site and they'll have you download that. So um, you can download my files from here and also the talks I gave on the sanctuary at GYC. So the audios will be available on Audioverse, and actually I'll probably put the audios along with the actual notes on this once I, I, I'll download them from Audioverse and put them both together. So that might be something you want. Okay, so in our last time together, we looked at these S's, and we were, we were discerning how it is that you lead people from health to Him, right? And the first thing is you have to have scientific excellence. The second thing was what? Sacrificial service, what was the third thing? Sufficient time. The fourth thing was significant interaction, right? Significant interaction. Then what was it? Spiritual pathway is established. We just finished that. Now, once that spiritual pathway is established, like we saw the difference between um, a spiritual nature and the fleshly nature, those two war against each other. But once that's established, this is what happens. Those who are willing to inform themselves concerning the effect of sinful indulgement upon the health and who commence the work of reform, even if it be from selfish motives, in so doing, place themselves where the truth of God may find access to their hearts. So in other words, when someone comes to your program, and they might come for like all the wrong reasons, they're just you know selfishly there, then something begins to happen to them. And once that begins to happen to them, they're just drawn towards the, mes- the, the, the master and the message. And I've seen that happen again and again and again. I'll tell you one story about this guy named David. He came to one seminar, and he was a very large man. He had uh, a, a big problem. He had pulmonary edema, and, uh, and yet he still was just uh, not wanting to do uh, the right things. He actually came to the seminar because his wife dragged him to the seminar. Well, didn't drag him, put him in the truck and pulled him. And uh, he, was, he, he was a big man. And he, he had actually bought, he had brought food with him to eat while he was in the, uh, in the restroom. You know, he would go out and he'd like, then he'd come back in. I caught him in there. He was, he was eating. I mean, he had a real food addiction, you know. And he was there. But then he started to listen and it started to grip him. I went over to his house. He had so much insomnia, he could hardly even listen through a Bible study. You know, he asked me to study the Bible with him. He wanted to know about that, but he, he would go to sleep. So I figured if I get him up walking, it's going to be hard for him to go to sleep. So I have him walking, you know, and he couldn't walk that far. And he couldn't really walk that far. But finally, after about a year of studying with him, he was actually walking a mile around this, this, this block. And I can remember studying this 2,300 days with him in the sand, you know, and drawing it out in the sand and things with him. And so what had happened was he came to the seminar, but then he was gripped, you know. So gripped by his charms, stripped by his charms, and equipped by his charms. That's a good sermon title, right? So that's what happened to him. So when people come, even though they're selfish, it can really change their hearts 
and their minds. I'll tell you another story about this guy. His name was George. He came to a health seminar, the last one I had in Wichita. And this guy was an interesting guy. He, again, was an engineer type. And he came at first, and he was just uh, interested in all the statistics and whatnot of the program. Uh, he's the engineer that actually put the electrical system in this plane behind him, the global flyer, the one that flew around the world with Steve Fawcett. So this is the engineer who came. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the scientific excellence gripped him, but then the sacrificial service really got to him because we went to visit his wife in the hospital when she got pneumonia. And when I did that, he goes, man, no one has ever come to visit. Why don't you come over to my house? So I went over to his house, and there he had on the desk, he had all kinds of books, and he was studying all about Adventists and all about all these different things. He had already gripped, you see. I began to study with him. He was an atheist agnostic, and over the months, he just began to come along. He began to come along to the Lord and uh, began to get open to the, to the Bible, to the source of authority called the Bible. And I'll show you the study that I gave him in just a minute here. So, here's our element. Scientific excellence coupled with sacrificial service over a sufficient amount of time with significant interaction will establish a spiritual pathway. And when these elements are present, people will naturally begin to ask the question. They'll ask, what's the connection? What's the connection between this and your church? What's the connection between this and your faith? You see, this is, this is really the secret of living a radical life of discipleship. How many of you heard the sermon this morning? I mean, you've got a, 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 Jeffrey works at a ministry called Radiant Living. I'm actually on their board. And they want to live such, they want to live lives that are so radiant that people will see that and they'll go, wow, you know, what's happening in your life? I think that's pretty good, don't you? And uh, that's how Moses went. He went up the mountain, he came down the mountain, and uh, it says he had coruscations. You know what a coruscation is? It's kind of a confusing word, but it's kind of like a halo. How many would like to have a halo? No? How many would not like to have a halo? Okay. Well, anyway, you'll probably get your, if you don't want to have one, you'll probably get your wish. But anyway, that word was so confusing that the Latin Vulgate translated it horns. How many of you have ever seen the statue of Moses? He has horns on. This is over there in, uh, in Italy. How many of you have ever seen that? At the Lateran Cathedral, or maybe, I think that's where it is. St. Lateran Cathedral. So they thought that that word meant horns. But what it really meant was that there was such a glow coming from him and uh so when that happens when you serve people effectively then they see that scientific excellence and they're gripped then they'll begin to ask the question what's the connection between this and your church and what i do then is i start to talk to them about the source of authority you know what source of authority do they use in their life everybody has a source of authority it might be their grandmother it might be their mother-in-law it might be their wife it might be their kids but ultimately the best thing it has to be is what god's word Right? So the source of authority. We talk about the source of authority. And we want to move beyond the science to Scripture. Now, this morning, in the first lecture this morning, what I talked about was that basically, I'll repeat it now because some of you are new. So, I'll repeat it now. You see, basically, the Bible lays the foundation for science, not the other way around. Uh, professors at Seton Hall in Oxford had this to say, Hindu, Chinese, Mayan, Egyptian, Babylonian, and Greek cultures all had varying degrees of starts in science that ended in stillbirth. Why? Because these, these religions, God is everywhere. He's not reliable. The Hindus have all kinds of gods. Who knows which one is doing what? And so they try and cover it all. They've got this God and that God. And all of these cultures had multiple gods. They had pantheons. 
Pan means worldwide. Theos means God. I mean, they oh, let's get all the, the gods together in one building <laughs> and we'll just have it covered. And so they wear these omelets and, oh, not omelets, they're not omelets, they would be like a high, high dairy and make your cholesterol go up. But anyway, so they, uh, yeah, they had all these and they wore all those. And this concept of an orderly world as deduced from the rational, consistent God of the Bible ultimately would provide a basis for belief in cause and effect, which forms the basic concept of science. The pagan gods were capricious. They didn't have this. How many think this is an interesting thought? So in other words, when, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is made up of 27% prophecy. So specifically, the reason the, the Bible laid the foundation for science was because of prophecy. How many of you are glad to be a part of a church that believes prophecy and preaches prophecy? Some people get confused. They go, oh, I don't want any more creature features. I don't want those beasts coming across. My, I don't want that stuff happening. I don't. Look, those prophecies are the foundation of Western civilization. They're the ones that laid the foundation for science and for the Enlightenment. How many of you are glad to be a part of a church that still preaches that? You see what I'm saying? All right. So basically the source of authority that you've demonstrated uh, in your health program is scientifically sound, but you wouldn't have science without the Bible. So you've got to let the people in on that secret. Because you don't have them on the foundation. You have them on the foundation that was on the foundation. Are you with me? And you want to root them to the root, not to the stump. Wow, you can tell I haven't thought that through. But I think it's working. So you you kind of lead them to credible sources, not just scientific sources. Hi, Mr. Philosophy. Good to see you again. Not just the credible source, a credible, not just science. Because look, let me, doesn't science change? I mean, can't you go on the internet and find a scientist to say anything you want them to say? You know, the experts are spurting here and spurting there. And, they, and there's just different kind of spurts for different kind of shirts or whatever. So, I mean, you've got, you've got people just that they're willing to say anything. So you need some kind of straight stick. You need something that can help you even, uh, you know, pick between the experts. Right? Right. The Word of God. Exactly. And that's the point. If you don't get them. So this is a program that I uh, put together called the... Uh, First chip program, or you can put any health program in there you want. The first cooking school series, whatever your program is called. And let me just give you an idea. What I just basically do is I I tell people, I say, look, many people are now becoming interested in this connection between spirituality and healing. You know, you get these flyers. I got this from Harvard Medical School. Or even the common magazines of the day. They talk about faith and healing. Boy, I got to work on this color. And they talk about, um, can this man save your heart, meditation, prayer? And they're talking about all of these. But some people get concerned. They say, what if I get ambushed by spirituality? In other words, I come to your health program, but I get ambushed by spirituality. Not too many people say that, by the way. In my health seminars now, I take a, I do a spiritual inventory. What I do is I cover, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's some great studies out. I cover all of the uh, impact of spirituality on health. And I say, look, with all these positive impacts, don't you think we should talk about this? And then I give a spiritual questionnaire. And as people go through that, then I tally it up the next day, and I show them that 98% of the people in the class think that we should talk about spirituality. And so the 2% that said, no, I just said, I know that you're very, very firm in your beliefs, or you wouldn't have marked the things that way. And because you're so confident, uh, just bear with the rest of us, but we want to get every bit of health we can get. 
So then I can bring spiritual in without offending people. Studies indicate, however, that ignoring the spiritual aspect of our lives can be very hazardous to our health. I just look at a popular rendition of that found in the Reader's Digest. Church members have lower death rates than non-members, regardless of risk factors. Those with religious commitment have fewer symptoms and had better health outcomes in cancer, blood pressure, heart disease, and general health studies. People with strong religious commitment seem to be less prone to depression, suicide, alcoholism, and other addictions. And 80% of Americans believe that spiritual faith or prayer can help people recover from illness or injury. In fact, they want their doctors to talk to them about it. More than 60% of doctors should think that they should talk about faith and pray with those who request it. And the doctors themselves believe that God had intervened in their health situations. So don't think today that you can't talk about the spiritual because people are wanting to move beyond the facts and then contemplate faith. They want to not just look at the science, but they want to look at the spiritual, not just at logic, but also love, not just at research, but also relationships. So as you serve people well in your health programs, these are the kind of things they get interested in. So uh, when I was studying with George or with other people in my health programs, I would go to their house and I, would, I just learned that the easiest approach was just to lay it out. I told them, hey, look, Seventh-day Adventists see the Bible as the final source of authority in their religion. I talk about that to them. When the church began, early pioneers began to see that the people in their churches were dying at an early age, usually in their 30s or 40s. And they were. I mean, back then, it was a recommended treatment to smoke if you had lung problems. So, you know, evidently most people were going up in smoke because of that kind of stuff. So some early pioneers, Ellen and uh, uh, James White, the Whites, they started to visit the institutions of their day. They studied the Bible to see what the principles were for healthy living. And they founded this, uh, what was called the Western Reform Health Institute, uh, uh, later to become the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And when they first founded it, the first doctor, he wasn't that good. And, and all the patients kind of dwindled down. There were only 12 left. So they brought this young doctor in. This young guy was about 26. And they brought him in, and his mustache was almost bigger than his head. But he was a very effective physician, actually a surgeon, and he did thousands of surgeries. Of course, you know his name, John Harvey Kellogg. And, you know, he was a bowel surgeon, and so he's always looking at people's bowels, which is uh, um, uh, troubling. But anyway, so he was looking there, and he recognized they had all kinds of cancer. They had obstructions. They had other things. And he wanted to create foods that would move things through, if you know what I mean, keep people on the move, so to speak. So um, he, he, uh, he came up with uh, these uh, cornflakes, actually out of a mistake. Uh, maybe you've gone through the tour. They left them on this wheel overnight. The next morning they were kind of crunchy, and they tasted them and said, hey, that's pretty good. Cornflakes were born. And uh, peanut butter and almond butters, all those different things, were, uh, uh, Kellogg came up, and then granola. So uh, people that come to your classes, they're always interested in that. They go, wow, wow, did he come up with Tony the Tiger too? No, 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 he did not. That was Will Keith that did that. When you, uh, a few years ago, you could go to Battle Creek and you could visit a museum, which is now shut. But in that museum, you'd go to the top uh, or to the first exhibit. And the first exhibit had Will Keith, that's John Harvey Kellogg's brother, and he, and they were arguing over about the cornflakes. So they're arguing about who came up with them. And then on the screen, there comes on the screen, Ellen White flies onto the screen. She goes, actually, cornflakes came as a result of divine inspiration. Of course, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think so. But the point is the museum is saying what? that Ellen White was responsible 
for many of those health foods. Isn't that interesting? So the Kellogg Foundation recognizes that. Now, then I talk about Ellen White. Now, this is how I talk about Ellen White. You know, there's another seminar going on about the attacks on Ellen White. Let me tell you something. Ellen White <laughs> uh, is becoming more and more respected in the area of health. This is a picture of T. Colin Campbell. And T. Colin Campbell is the principal researcher on the largest epidemiological study known to mankind. That was the study of the rural Chinese, where they went and they took all the communists, uh, the communists got all the people together. Like, you know, communists can really marshal people much better than even other countries because they don't care about what, what they do. want to do. They have to do it, right? So they said, we want to get blood samples and urine samples and all kinds of samples, whatever kind of sample you can get from everybody, and study all the Chinese in these major cities. And they went to the entire country of China. How many of you know that China is pretty big? Yeah, made in China is like on everything, right? So it's like very big. And, as, and so they had this huge epidemiological study. And uh, he was in charge of this with another guy from Oxford University, a couple, a few people. Actually, a bunch of people worked together, but he was like one of the principal researchers. He has more than 77 years of research grants that have been granted to him. In other words, all, the government gives away research grants to study different things. And he's not uh, 77 years old yet, but he's a, a, such an effective scientist that the people working under him have, have worked a total of 77 years writing various papers. Okay, how many of you think that, why am I spending the time here? So you know who the guy is, right? He works for the National Institutes of Health. He was on all of these different commissions. When he, when he retired from Cornell, he decided to write a book telling the truth about nutrition. And uh, Cornell and the others didn't want him to write it so much because they didn't really want the truth. They wanted uh, uh, the, you know, others to be happy. So he wrote a book called The China Study. How many of you have ever seen the book, The China Study? By the way, there's a new edition perhaps coming out that's going to have a specific foreword written and then introduce all the writings of, of many of the different writings uh, that Adventists told dear. I think it's going to be an excellent edition. How many would be interested in an edition like that if it came out? So we're actually working on that right now. And I just was uh, in contact with Dr. Campbell last week. Anyway, this is what Dr. Campbell said to me back January 24, 2005, when I interviewed him in Wichita, Kansas, uh, there in the church. I brought him out for a health program, and I was interviewing him, and I had sent these questions beforehand, and this was his email response, and then also the response that he gave in the interview. I am not aware of anyone who was more on point than Ellen White. Given her background, she's truly an amazing woman. Now notice this. I am convinced that almost 100% of her statements are now substantially supported by the scientific evidence that has been developed during the past two to three decades. Now look, this is the head guy of the China study, the most significant study done in the world epidemiologically. And he's saying Alan White's things he says about, uh, about science. And I sent about health, and I sent him at least, uh, I don't know, 16 pages of statements. And he read through them all. And he says, those are all basically validated by science in the last two to three decades. How many think that's just great? Now, look, the reason Adventists uh, have the source of authority is because science is based on the Bible. And, by, and in the Bible specifically, we said it's prophecy, right? But now, look, there's another element, and that's the spirit of prophecy. How many of you are thankful to be a part of a church that not only has prophecy, but has the spirit of prophecy? Is that good news? Wow. So I introduced them to that. Now, notice how he continues. Notice how he continues. What I have come to realize and even deeply worry about is why is it that this message of Ellen White and others has been so mislaid on the shelves out of sight? It is abundantly clear to me that now is the time to bring this forward in whatever way that each of us are able to do. No. 
This is a non-Adventist, actually Unitarian, who is saying these things. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, you know what? His predecessor, his major university at Cornell University was Clive McKay. Clive McKay was a scientist who in the 50s wrote a series of articles that were published in the Adventist magazine called the Ministry Magazine. He was his last graduate student. He never knew anything about what Clive McKay had written. But here you have two of the leaders of the same department and an eminent school of nutritional biochemistry who are saying exactly the same thing. One in one generation, one in the next generation, independent of each other, just looking at the data. Why isn't this up on websites? You've got all these attack sites to Ellen White. We need to put this up on a website, yes or no? You see what I'm saying? They're right up there. But they're not on the website yet. Uh, well, I'm working with him. See, these are, this is a personal correspondence, but I'm working. This, I'm hoping this will be in the foreword of that new edition of the China study. And, and we're hoping that will come out this year. This year. It might offend people. Did you hear that? The sister says it might offend people. You know, Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. So, anyway, so Ellen White, Ellen White, uh, Ellen White has been, has been validated by science and by reality many times in the area of health. Paul Harvey said, Ellen White, you don't know her, get to know her. And then Ellen White, what would she say? This is what she had to say. She would say, study his word. So she would point people back to his word. Now, what does the Bible say? Genesis 1, 29. What's it say? And God said, see, I've given you every green herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the, all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for, for what? For food. By the way, this is the best food to get good grades, even today. Notice what happens. I was interviewing Dr. Timothy Arnott, who did a study based on this word processor for windows, putting in fruits uh, vegetables, grains, and beans. When you put in that an average of 120, 195 fruits, vegetables, grains, and beans, what you find is that diet has 1% saturated fat, 7% fat, 78% carbohydrate, 15% protein. That is an excellent diet to stop, prevent, or reverse any Western disease. If you look at all the studies, that's, the, that's an optimal diet. And guess what? God seemed to know that. How many of you think that's very surprising? Now let's add in the nuts. Some people go crazy over nuts, but I think they're a little bit nuts because nuts are okay if you have the right kind of nuts. So this is 227 fruits, grains, beans, vegetables, nuts, and seeds, it should say there. Saturated fat goes up a bit because of those omega-3s and 6s and everything else. The fat goes up to 25%, carbohydrate 60%, protein. But those, some of those fats are very good for you. The omega-3s and whatnot we're finding are implicated when you have depression and all those different things. So this is very positive. How many can see that God knew what he was talking about? So that's the first text we would look at. Of course, the American Cancer Society and others, they basically take their playbook right out of Genesis 1.29. It's just like maybe Jeffrey doesn't think broccoli is the central thing. <laughs> but it's becoming more centralized. Are you see with me? And uh, it's because they've taken broccoli and thrown it all behind them, nothing against Jeffrey, that lots of people have cancer. Yes or no? But once they put it back on the center of the plate instead of the side of the plate, what happens? Cancer is avoided. Other things are reversed. No one ever died from heart disease, and they open up afterwards, and they look inside his coronary arteries and go, Oh, no, it's a big stick of broccoli that got him. <laughs> Never has happened. 
So even though that, that, health, that message of health was there, you know, Genesis 1.29 was a powerful diet. Still is a powerful diet. Even though it was there, Genesis 3, 1 to 6 has this terrible conclusion. And no, this is not a Macintosh apple. This is what happened. God had said, shall you not eat of every tree of the garden? You shall not die, the devil says. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, that your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods. So what happened was that the devil became the first drug pusher. He said, you eat this and you'll get high. <laughs> you'll get higher than God. <laughs> then he gave it to his wife. You see that? How many of you can see this? And he began pushing that. And this is a huge problem. Huge problem. So the Bible then, of course, goes through the story of the flood, how the other emergency rations were introduced. We could talk all about that. But let's fast forward now to the time of the Exodus. And in Deuteronomy 7, verse 15, notice what it says. God's people were now in captivity. They'd been in captivity for 430 years. They were in Egypt. And uh, notice what the Lord says. Let's read it together. The Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee. So look, he said, look, you're getting sick and there's diseases from Egypt. Now the question is, what were the diseases of Egypt? What were the diseases of Egypt? Let's see if you can figure these out. What's this disease? Dead. dead. Yeah, he's dead. It's a very bad disease. <laughs> dead. Yeah. 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 Let's look at this. That's a, taken from the book Carol Reads. What's the problem here? Good, good. Your guys are better than the guy that said he was missing a string on his guitar. So this is, a, this is good. So, yes, we have, uh, we have obesity. Is obesity a problem? Absolutely. Well, let's look at that problem. Here, starting uh, in America in 1985 is the date. When it gets darker, that means there's, uh, uh, when it gets lighter here, this is less than 10%. This is greater than 10% obesity. These, country, these, these states here in 1995 had greater than 10%, um, or 10 to 14%, rather. This was 0 to 10%, and then there was no data for these. When they started tracking the data, notice what happens. 1986, 1987, 1988, 1999. 1990, 1991, 1992. Now everybody's around 10 to 14% in 92. And then some are moving up to, you notice, 15 to 19%. 1994, 1995, 1996, 1997. Now some are moving greater than 20% obesity. 1998, 1999, 2000. Now some are up to 25%. 2001, 2002. Can you see what's happening to America? How many of you can see what's happening to America? Awesome. Now, what has happened over the last eight, 85, 95, 2002? Over the last 25, 30 years, what has happened? This nation has actually exploded. <laughs> now, you might think that that's, uh, that's funny, uh, but it's not. And you know what's happening? Diabetes, heart disease, cancer, hypertension, everything else that's driving the, uh, the health care crisis is coming because people simply can't seem to control right here what goes into their mouth. You know what it says in Philippians? At the end of time, people, their God will be their belly. Isn't that interesting? So where do we live? We live when people's gods are their belly. 
By the way, they've studied a linear relationship between this and the cheese industry. In the 1970s, the end of the 1970s, they recognized that cheese had something in it, just like the tobacco companies who their executives got up in the 90s and said nicotine is not addictive, even though they had internal memos that said otherwise. You know what the cheese industry discovered in the 19, uh, late 1970s and early 1980s? That cheese has something in it. You know what it's called? Casomorphins. What does morphin sound like? Morphine. It's the same derivative. And when you eat cheese, a lot of cheese, guess what? Cheese lovers pizza. The reason they would put more and more on is because more and more casomorphins were, were released. And how many of you just love cheese? You see? And you just go, man, I just got to have that cheese, Louise. This is like an Adventist vegetarian rebellion, right? That, ooh, man. Right? I mean, I like the taste of cheese, too. Really? Yeah. But you see what happened? They saw that relationship between the two. How many think that's very interesting? Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So, yeah, those trends went up. Oh, by the way, 2004. Look at that. 2004. I forgot to show you. 2004. Look at that. So you have greater than 25%. Now, here's the other thing. Once you look at that, you go, wow, that's, that's interesting. But now let's look a little deeper. You see... One in four persons seeing a primary care physician about weight problems has an active psychiatric illness, usually depression. So not only, you don't just look at someone and say, okay, there's a problem with obesity. Sometimes what's underneath is an issue of relationships or depression, you know? I remember one health program, I had someone come into my health program, and that person was sitting in my program, and they were very, very large. A very attractive uh, lady, but, uh, but very large. I mean, too large. I mean, morbidly obese, big, huge, right? So I go to talk to her, and she was like nervous as a cat in a room of rocking chairs. And I was like, man, this is, this is, this is you know, different. So I just, you know, I, I didn't talk too much. But then we won her confidence, and when her confidence won, you know what she said to me? She said to me, you know the reason I eat so much? I said, what? She goes, when I was young, when I was a little girl, my uncles and my dad and everybody else in my family passed me around, if you know what I mean. And so the reason that she was doing that was because she wanted to look so ugly that that would never happen again. You understand? So when we are in health programs, what I begin to learn is that the issue is never usually the issue. I mean, the issue, you know, what people come for is what you think the issue is, is not really the issue. So that's why whenever they come, you, you, you don't just look at the blood test. You look at the body language and what's happening in their lives and you get involved into, into their lives and you find the relational things. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. Now, what's the problem here? These are, of course, the ribs, that's the spine, that's the arms. This is the gallbladder. Those are gallstones. I know you can't tell probably from that slide. Gallstones. What, why, why do people get gallstones? Fat, high fat diet, you know, 40, fertile, flatulent, fat, gallstones. That's what they taught us in nursing school. <laughs> I don't know why they teach you guys. But anyway, so, again, high fat, high fat diet. What's the problem here besides no skin and eyeballs? Rotten teeth. And so what they discovered with these affluent people was that they were drinking these heavily sugared drinks back in Egypt, date sugar and different things, and they were very sugary. Do we have that problem today? 
Yeah. So that will, you know, fuel diabetes and everything else. And then notice here, they have, you know, they had the soft tissue of these mummies still. And then you can see an artery there. And that artery, has, it has atherosclerotic plaques. So what were they dying of in Egypt? Heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, stroke, hypertension. These are all the things they can tell by looking at the mummies and the daddies. So as you look through those, <laughs> as, you, as, as you look through those... <laughs> You begin to recognize them. Now, this is a powerful thing. When you're studying with people, what you recognize, but they begin to recognize that everything that you studied in your health program is now something that the Bible already knew about and the Bible was already addressing. How many of you can see the powerful thing that happens in people's minds when they see this? So they've gone through your program and they've seen all the science, but now they say, wait a minute, the Bible actually talk about this? This is bizarre.com. This is wild.org. This is something out of this world. And and you can just almost see it in their mind. They just kind of go, where's King James? You know, i got to find him. You know, they're looking. And they they will start to ask, well, can we study more of this? The Bible then becomes a, a, a very interesting book to them because it's dealing with science now. Capiche? So, uh... One last study from Egypt. They studied the toilets. This is not an Egyptian toilet. Um... This is the toilet of someone's house that I went to visit. But anyway, uh, uh, this, this, they, they <laughs> yeah, I won't tell you whose who's it is. You might know them. So anyway, um, they studied the toilets of the area of Egypt where the upper echelons lived, the so-called Hyksos. And the Hyksos were the, like the, the Hebrews. And then they studied the upper intelligentsia and like the pharaohs. You know, the pharaohs, their graves, uh, they hung out for a time because they, you know, uh, they had more money. So um, they studied the, the latrines of those areas. And the areas where the Hyksos lived were filled with fruit pectins and vegetable things. Whereas the ones of the affluent Egyptians had parasites and all kinds of things consistent with meat eating. Isn't that interesting? So it's like a clenching case that the people back there in Egypt were dying of Western diseases like we die because they were eating the things we're eating. How many of you can see this? So when you show that to someone like George or those, in, those engineers that are coming through your, their class, they've already gone through your class and you've shown all that scientifically in, in your program. And then when they see it in the Bible, they kind of, what do they do? They just kind of go, oh, I can see the connection. I can see why this church is involved in this. Because the Bible was talking about it. And because Ellen White was talking about it. Wow, this is quite a church. You know what happened last week? I was sitting in my little AFCO to go class. I teach a little class called AFCO to go. It's in that brochure, you know, next to the Bible study I gave you. And I'm teaching that little class, right? And this guy walks into the class. He goes, can I sit in your class? And I was like, you know, when someone asks that, you always wonder if they should. You know what I mean? Someone comes to your church. Can I come to your church? Well, why do you think you shouldn't come to my church, you know? I mean, I don't want to be paranoid, but there's freaky people out there these days, right? But I I don't ever say that. I'm just like... But, you know, anyway, so he comes, he says that. He says, can I sit in your class? I said, sure, where are you from? He goes, where do you think I'm from? Because he had kind of a heavy accent. And I said, well, I think you're probably from some kind of uh, Middle Eastern country, it sounds like to me. He goes, exactly. I'm not, you know, I don't know. That, I, that doesn't sound like, I don't know what language that was, kind of like a robot. But anyway, he said, exactly. I said, where are you from? He goes, I'm from Palestine. Palestine? Did you get lost? This is Sacramento. I didn't say it that way, but, you know, I said it kind of. He said, well, actually, I was watching my satellite, and I came across 3ABN, and I saw these health programs you were doing, and then I saw that you were out there at Amazing Facts. And then 
Well, I had a heart attack. Well, not because he saw me, but he had a heart attack. <laughs> and, and I started to lose weight, and I became a vegetarian, and I stopped smoking. This is all from watching that little dish. And then I decided to go to church on the Sabbath, and then I realized that people, when they die, really, really, really sleep, and I, all these different things. But I never met an Adventist, because there's no Adventists in Palestine. There's only Muslims and the Zionists. He didn't like either groups particularly too much, but like anybody else over there. So, so he, he, he said, so I wanted to come, and I was coming to America to visit my son. And when I got there, I, I, I brought my computer with me so I wouldn't miss 3ABN so I could mainstream it on the Internet. <laughs> this guy's a 3ABN junkie, all right? So, 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 like, so, so, like, so like he goes, and then I saw your announcement for the class, AFCO to go, and I decided to come to the class. Can I sit in? I said, well, what, what, what uh, yeah, he's a Greek Orthodox, his wife's a Roman Catholic from Palestine, the city of Bethlehem, no less, and he comes around the world. Would he have come to my class without the health message? Do you see how the health message is powerful? And it's credible. And when he was li- sitting there last week in the class, that was actually Monday through Thursday, he was sitting there and he was just like... I went through the entire books of Daniel and Revelation in four hours. <laughs> it was like me on steroids. Okay. And I went through that. And he was like, and he, he was, he was like, going, wow. He starts writing it down, you know. And then I went through the sanctuary doctrine. And I showed him some of the stuff I showed you this morning. He was like, wow, you know. And I thought he was turning charismatic on me. So we, we were at lunch together. And man, I tell you what. But you see what did that? The entering wedge. Say something with me. The entering wedge is the entering wedge. Can you say that? The entering wedge is the entering. So many people say to me, what do you do after you do the health program? Uh, What do you do to make it spiritual? It already is spiritual because the entering wedge is the entering wedge. You're already in. The entering wedge is the entering wedge. Confused, sister. You weren't here this morning. Were you the first class? Okay. So how did God, how did God remove those diseases? What I do then with people is I show people, I show people how was it that God removed the diseases of Egypt? We've documented what those diseases are. Now, how did God remove them? This is basically repentance. <laughs> the gospel of repentance, right? So once you do something, you're going that way and you want to go this way. Really, health ministry is the, is, the, is, the, is the message of repentance. Did you know that? It's repentance demonstrated. Well, how do we do that? In our health program, like the, I call it the first CHIP program, if I'm working with CHIP program, I talk about how we were leading a project to teach people to, to, to make a choice. This guy, William Glasser, he's, came up with reality therapy or choice therapy. What he did was he decided he t- that, if he was, uh, that if he could get enough people in New York to make certain decisions, he could change the entire city just by the choices of people. How many think this sounds strangely familiar? Everything depends on the right action of the will. Steps to Christ, page 48. Anyway, what God did was he called this the Exodus program. X means out. Odas means odometer. The meter, that's where we get the root word from odometer. So he takes people out. He helps them exit in a metered, measured way. Aren't you glad that he doesn't just jerk you out? He brings you out what? Step by step. Exodus. So he starts this Exodus program. It's really just a big choice therapy thing. 
They had to make a bunch of choices. Now, what happens with people uh, in health programs is they had a lot of misconceptions. And so they have to clear up these misconceptions. But usually, health programs begin because people have a need. What was the need they had? Read this with me, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. The children of Israel, because of the bondage, and they cried out and their cry came up to God. So they actually were crying out for this program. When God started this health program, were there any promises made? Exodus 15:26, read it with me. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. How did God then run the program? This is how he ran the program. He took a history and began to confront errors through education. You know, 85% of every diagnosis that's made by a physician or that's made by a clinician is based on a history. Usually you get it wrong if you don't listen to people, 85%. On diagnosis, what's that mean? Dia means through, gnosis means to know. So he, he took a history, and then he confronted errors through education. He listened. He said, what do you believe? Now, what were some of their beliefs? Their cognitive distortions is what we call them. In other words, their thoughts were distorted. Well, first of all, one thing they believed was that you were supposed to worship the river. How many of you have ever been tempted? Going by the river, singing down by the riverside. You think it's time to worship the river. Anyone here been tempted about this? But they were tempted because they believed that the, the river was the bloodstream of God. The bloodstream of God. So was this a distortion? So what did God do? He said, okay, you believe that the river is the bloodstream of God. So guess what I'm going to do to the river? I'm going to turn it into the bloodstream. <laughs> and as soon as he turned it into a bloodstream, what did they say? Oh, uh, we don't like that. No, no, no. We do not believe that. We said we believed it, but we don't believe it anymore. How many think that God knows how to clear up distortions? Secondly, they worship frogs. How many of you have ever been tempted? And then the frogs, you know, they believe that the frogs were the goddess of fertility. They believe that frogs were the wife of the creator. It was a capital offense to kill frogs. So that, you know, they're worshiping frogs. By the way, Revelation 16 says at the end of time, people will be worshiping the frogs. You know, they, they, they receive the free frogs message instead of the three angels messages. But that's another point. So here they are. And they're worshiping the frogs. So what does God do? He says, okay, you believe the frogs are God? Then we'll send the frogs everywhere in your life. Because God's supposed to be everywhere. So he'd send them into the meeting bowls, into the bedrooms, and everywhere. And pretty soon, ribbit, ribbit, it was not so riveting. They said, absolutely not. I don't think that we really are into the frog God. I preached a sermon once called The Day God Jumped Into Bed. <laughs> Based on this story. And this little old lady told me afterwards, she said, that was not a good sermon. <laughs> she was on to something. They worshipped the bugs. They worshipped the bugs, like the scabbard beetles and the, all those different things. You, know, you look at the sarcophagi and you can see where they put all those things and they worship the bugs. And so God sent bugs and he sent little bugs and big bugs. And when the little bugs came, the lice, you know, the lice went into their ears. And what they say? In their eyes, they said, this is the finger of God. Because when those bugs went into their, on their bodies and everything, they could not go into their temples. And what happened was God effectively shut down every church by doing that in the city. All the pantheon was gone. Gone pantheon. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So it was gone. And uh, they worshipped the sun. They worshipped the sun. And Pharaoh was, was, was known as the sun god. And the sun was Pharaoh during the day. He was a very Pharaoh, you know. And then 
at night when the sun went down, it supposedly went underground by the river Styx. You know that rock group a few years ago called Styx? That's where they got that name. So go that, they go right down the river Styx, and then the sun would come up the next time, around and around. Boy, you got enough pictures? I'm just checking. All right. <laughs> I'm not like the sun god or something, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, that, so, so anyway, so the, uh, so, so, that's okay. We'll give you the green light. Don't you have a green shirt? So the, uh, the, the, uh, they worship the sun. So when God, what did God do? He turned off the lights. And when he turned off the lights, it says in the Bible that the darkness was so dark that what? You can feel it. How many of you have ever been in darkness like that? It's pretty dark. Dark. And guess what they thought? If, if Pharaoh was, the, was like God and he was a son, he got turned off. And not only did he got t- turned off, but the, the sun got turned off, the moon got turned off, and there were no stars. They all got turned off. And what did they immediately think? The God of the Hebrews is much stronger than the God of, and that's why all those mixed multitude got unmixed and refixed, you know. They said, we're going to leave. That's why they left. You see what God was doing? He was clearing up cognitive distortions. This is what you do in health classes, yes or no? You see people that say, well, I think it's healthy to do this. Not exactly. Here's the science. Let's clear that up for you. Well, I think it's healthy to do that. No. So what I do in the class during this time is I say, did we expose any errors during our seminar? And I just listen, and they'll tell me about all the different things. Yeah, I used to think that I had to eat two all beef patty, special sauce, pickles, lettuce, sesame seeds, and a sesame seed bun. <laughs> you know, but now I believe that we have to eat two all of the broiled broccoli sticks and uh, you know whatever they come up with. And they, the distortions have been replaced. Cognitive distortions have been replaced. Can you see how God is setting a paradigm up for them? This is it. Next, God ordered a blood test. <laughs> you know, in our health seminars, many times we have a blood test. They come and get their blood drawn. But God had one too. Remember what was called? The Passover. And if you didn't put the blood on your doorpost, what happened? The firstborn died from every single family. That was, that was a test. And the people that passed it, uh, God helped. In our health classes, they have a blood test as well. And there I am drawing some blood in the morning. <laughs> I love drawing blood. Does anyone have a need? Anyway, so uh, draw blood, and after you get that blood test back, people will just cry out and say, what must I do to be saved? Because, you know, they figure out what's wrong with them, and so they identify that. Next, they were to leave Egypt. We're showing the connection between the Exodus program and our health programs. They were to leave Egypt. Now, how did God get them out of Egypt? I don't know why I took this picture, but it was like one guy going the wrong way, you know what I mean? Um, uh, um, How did God get them out of Egypt? He led them good. But how did he get them out? Did he use a helicopter? Did he rapture them? Did he use mass transit? They walked. And then I asked him, what did we do in our program? We walked. Because in our program, we put, a, they, we put a big map up on the wall, and we would just pick a destination, and we walked to that destination and, and back. And I say, see, God ran his program just like our program. And they go, wow, that's a, that's a really profound reason to come up with that. You know, first they thought it was just a walk. But now we're doing it because God did it. What did God have them do to remind them of his power? He had music therapy. How many of you like music therapy? You know that song? I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumph gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumph gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. That was the song, Exodus 15, 1 and 2. 
And then, uh, you know, uh, in the Nedley program, we have all kinds of songs we sing, like this song. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's okay. It's okay. I can stand it anyway. I can stand it anyway. I'm all right. I'm all right. I don't like it. Let's sing it together. I don't like it. It's okay. It's okay. I can stand it anyway. I can stand it anyway. I'm all right. I'm all right. I, I taught my daughters that. This really helps them, you know. I tell them, it's time to go to bed. I don't like it. Well, let's sing together. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's okay. My dad did music therapy on me when I was growing up. You know, we're going down the road, and I'm like getting at my brother, and he goes, all right, we're going to sing You Can Smile. You can smile when you can't say a word any minute. You can't say a word yet. It's only to sing. You can smile, and we had to be smiling too. Then you cannot be heard. You can smile. Sometimes we sang that song for hours until it took effect. This, this was therapy. You see what I mean? And if, and, and if I disobeyed my dad, you know what my dad would do? He'd say, get out of the car. He'd give me some exercise therapy. One time we were driving, we were driving out to, we were driving out to California. He said, get out of the car because I was messing around with my brother again. I had to walk. He would pull ahead like, you know, 300 yards and then I'd walk. And then he'd say, are you ready to behave yourself? And I'd say, that was a bad thing. <laughs> You know, he took me for four miles once. Finally, I was so tired, I said, please, just let me sleep in your car. I had this prodigal son experience from give me to make me one of the servants. You know what I mean? Woo, man. So anyway, God did the same thing. So he had music therapy. How many of you are with me? All right. So in these health programs, that's what happens. Oh, man. I will sing unto the Lord. What kind of fluids did God provide for them to drink? They had those date palms and the dental caries and all those different things that he didn't want them to have carried on. So what did he do? What did he give them to drink? Water? No, no, no. Mountain Dew. <laughs> no, it was <laughs> So, yes, right. He had this water. <laughs> he had the water come out of the rock, right? The water come out of the rock. This was a powerful thing. By the way, that was a very powerful sanctuary metaphor because the mountain was really a type of the sanctuary and water would ultimately flow from God's sanctuary. Water, the most powerful drink there is, the drink that sinks battleships. And he had them drink that. And it it reversed disease back then and it will reverse disease now. What kind of food did they want to eat? They were quibbling for quail. Give us quail or snail or something else, right? They wanted that. And so God gave them quail and then a lot of them died. Kibroth Hatavat, graves of craving is what it means, and the uh, that's the name of the place. And craving, the same word, is the same word that's used when it says that Eve desired the fruit. Interesting, right? But instead of the quail, what did God want to put them on? Manna. What does manna mean? What is it? And then I asked them, "Did you ever say that in the health seminar?" You know. And they did. You, did you ever say that in the health seminar? And they do. Like that. You bring out the food to them, and they go, what's that? What's that? What's that? I said, you guys had manna all during the program. Go, they laugh a little bit, you know, <laughs> nervously. But they, <laughs> but, they, but they see the point, you see? And it was a complex carbohydrate. Coriander seed brought them back. God not only prescribed what they should eat and drink, he also said when. When did he tell them they should, when, when did he tell them they should eat? In the early morning. So they had to get out and they had to gather their food before the sun came up. So they had to kneel down and gather their food. What would that remind them to do? To pray while they're not exercising. Maybe it was those push-ups or something. (laughs) Good thought, though. I never thought of that. So they would get down. They would pick up the food. And their devotional life then was reminded, you know. They were reminded of their devotional life. Isn't that powerful? 
Man. And then by what time did the food uh, go bad? At noontime, the food went bad. So in other words, you can make this case that what? The biggest meal of the day was? And they, then lunch was pretty big, but then what? Probably not a lot of supper. And th- then God gave them light therapy. <laughs> Serious light therapy out there in the wilderness. And, uh, you know, light therapy, let me show you this, especially for you guys that are in school. Light therapy is very powerful because the food, like manna, would have high levels of tryptophan in it. Um, and uh, the uh, tryptophan then is changed in the presence of sunlight and B vitamins, that's your green leafy vegetables, into hydroxytryptophan, that's adding of hydrogen and oxygen, and then that is changed into serotonin. And when you get serotonin, you feel good. You feel good. It doesn't put you to sleep, but it makes you not weep. Okay? It makes you feel good. That's the happy chemical. How many of you like happy chemicals? I'm happy for you. So, serotonin. <laughs> then at night, what happens? In the presence of complete darkness, that serotonin from the hours of about 8.30 to 12 is made into melatonin. Melatonin is that chemical that rebuilds your brain, makes you a lean, mean, academic machine. How many of you would like to get higher grades? How many of your parents would like you to get higher grades? (laughs) Well, uh, that's when your, your brain is rebuilt. During that time of 9 to 12, you know, Ellen White says that the hours before midnight are worth more than several hours after midnight. How did she know that? Now they're just discovering it. Isn't that interesting? By the way, your grades will go up a couple percentage points. One other thing to bring out here. Insulin will block the production of melatonin. What is insulin? Insulin. What is insulin? It's a hormone. It's a hormone. What does it do? Uh, what does it do? It helps the sugar get into the cell. Insulin. You know what I'm saying? In. Okay. So, so insulin. It helps it get in into the. But when you have insulin produced, guess what happens? Melatonin production shuts down. Which means that if you eat that double cheese cheese loaf pizza in your dormitory at night. <laughs> What happens to your brain? You become a Wisconsin cheesehead by morning. You, your, the melatonin does not really work. How many of you are with me? So if you go to bed early, 9 to 12, and then you get up early. Let's say you decided, all right, I'm going to put this in practice academically. I'm going to go to bed at 9 o'clock. I don't care what's happening. I don't care if I miss those compulsory worships or whatever. So I go to work. I go to bed at, as soon as I can, 9 o'clock, and then I get up at 4 in the morning. You know what? Your grades will go up. Your grades will go up. Now, if your grades go up, I would like to have some small cut. <laughs> but I'm telling you, they will go up. So what was given to stop, reverse, or better prevent cognitive distortions from occurring? See, God said you have ten cognitive distortions. The, wa- the, the, water, the water of the Nile is not God. You're not saved by that. It's not the blood of God, but you're saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's not the frogs, but it's me. You see all those distortions? How many of them were there? Ten. What did he give to replace the ten things he took away? Bingo. The ten commandments. Isn't God good? He never takes something away without replacing it with something that's better. And Jeffrey is talking today about living a life of belief, 
that's not harder, that's not less fun than leaving, living a life of unbelief. Do you believe that's true? It's very, 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 very rewarding to live a life of belief. And it's not very rewarding to go the other way. Amen? Amen. What teaching tool did God use to summarize His plan and purpose for His people? He used the sanctuary. And like we said earlier, you know, He moved people from unclean meats to clean meats to plant-based diet to totally plant-based diet as you go to the sanctuary. He was leading them back to Genesis 1.29. Does He love people out here? Yes. Does He love people here? Yes. Does He love people here? Yes. Does he love people here? Yes. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wants to lead them from glory to glory to glory, changed by Christ. That's the health message in embryo, and the sanctuary message was the health message embryonically. How many think that's a beautiful thing? Yeah, the guy from Palestine was like freaking out over that. He was like, wow. You know, he was, just, he was really happy about that. Let me show you a picture of what we've been studying. This is your brain. Well, not yours, but the bottom here is a picture of someone that's on Paxil, paroxetine, and they're depressed, right? And notice the parts of the brain that are lighting up. Side part of the brain, the back here, look at that. Maybe just a little bit up front here. That's that, that medication. It'll make you feel better, and there's definitely a place for that. And... Uh, but notice what happens with cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy is, is saying, look, what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> but here's the right thing to do. That's cognitive behavioral therapy, you know. This is what your teachers do to you all the time. You turn in a paper, they do cognitive behavioral therapy on you. No, wrong answer. So what's cognitive behavioral therapy? Um, it's telling someone the truth. And that's what God did in the Exodus. That's what he does in Bible study. You know, the disciples were all discouraged in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 24. And he opened the word to them beginning in Moses. And he changed them completely. And notice what part of the brain it works on. Right there on the frontal lobes. And what happens when we do health education correctly, when we do evangelism correctly, guess what happens? People's brains, people's lives are changed from the frontal lobe on down. Why do we listen to sermons? That's cognitive behavioral therapy. We listen to it and we go, oh. And it's made plain to us. And then our brains start to go, and we say, I choose to do that. I come forward. Right? And then hopefully that changes our behavior. Can you see that? God can radically change us. Can you see how powerful this study is? That's the first study I then give. I say, this is, God wants to radically change our lives. So George, I can remember George. He was coming. This was the George of the Global Flyer, the one who did that plane. And I can remember after I studied this and some other studies with him, he came to church, and I can remember the day I'm sitting in church. He was sitting there listening to me preach, and I was preaching because I was leaving that church. I was going to move to Amazing Facts. I'd been there 14 years. Let me just say this. When you know you're going to die, or when you know you're going to leave someplace, or when you know someone else that you love is going to die, or someone else is going to leave, do you take more attention to the little things in life? I think we should live a lot more like we're going to die. The big teaching point in Jeffrey's sermon was all those apostles died a death, right? And they were all aware they could die 
the next day, but they still live for God in spite of things. But a lot of us don't live as though we're going to die. So I was preaching this series of sermons called Faring Well, because I'd been there for so long, I'd never preached any farewell sermons. I decided to make it a series, Faring Well. So I had five sermons, and I had 27 people that I wanted to have make decisions for Jesus before I left the church. And George was one of them. So I was praying for those people, recognizing that I wouldn't be uh, with them in that significant way. And I began to preach those sermons. I was preaching my heart out. And I was up to the one day, and I saw George in the back as I was preaching. He started to cry. How did I know he was crying? Because it goes like this. And I knew he was crying. So I immediately started to make the appeal and appeal. And I looked the other way, so as not to put him under pressure or anything, you know. I made the appeal, and he came forward for the appeal. So then I started crying, which still really didn't help anybody, you know. <laughs> so then I go to visit him later, which, you know, what I've learned is that when someone responds to, appeal, responds to an appeal, that doesn't mean that they're responding to what you said. It could have been something else. They might have been thinking about something else totally unrelated to what you're talking about. So don't assume that what you said had anything to do with what they're doing. So I go to visit, and my Bible worker's with me, and we go into the house, and he goes, "Good, glad you guys came by. He goes over and sits down, and his lazy boy and his wife sits down, and the lazy girl. And as we go over there, we're coming over there to talk to him, and he turns the light out. And my Bible worker turns the light back on. He hadn't gone to AFCO yet. Why did he turn the light off? Because he was going to cry again. And usually men don't turn the light on when they're crying. Please, get the cameras. So, (laughs) turn the light off, and he began to well up again. And I said to him, what did that decision mean to you today? And he said, I want to be a part of the church, and I'm wondering, where do you want me to work? And I'm wondering, how do I make out my tithe check? How do I make out my checks to the church? How do I support it? And he began, his life was changed. And it was changed. He was an atheist agnostic. It was opened by the health message, and it was changed from the frontal lobe on down. You think God can still radically change people's lives? He can. So uh, there's his testimony, which we won't read. Medical missionaries who labor in the evangelistic lines. It's the same as what I said. It's just he said it. Medical missionaries who labor in evangelistic lines are doing a work as, as high in order as their minister of fellow workers. In the higher walks of life will be found many who will respond to the truth because it is consistent, because it bears the stamp of the high character of the gospel. Not a few of men of ability, thus one to the cause, will enter energetically into the Lord's work. And there next week and then continuing, George was right there on the front row. He was helping do whatever was necessary and he entered into church life. So they wrote an article about him in the, uh, in the recorder or something. Um, and um, basically, we introduced him to the source of authority, and then we followed him through the book of Daniel. I took him through Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And this is basically what I do with health context. Show them that first study, which is what I just went through you, God's Word documented, and then... Well, or your, your scientific program documents God's word in that health program. And then the study of the Exodus, which is what we just went through, talks, shows them that God really knew what he was thinking about. And then what I do is I introduce them to the oldest scientific study known of, to mankind, which is 
according to the New England Journal of Medicine, the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And we study that. And then we go through all these different chapters, all the way down through chapter 6. And it changes people's lives. Daniel chapter 1 through 6. I guess in closing, what I would say to you uh, before we close, and then I'll take any questions you might have, is that the most important thing that's happened in my life in looking at health ministry is not what's happened to the other people who have come to the classes. But there were 10% of the people that came through our CHIP programs that were baptized and joined the church. We had about 1,000 people go through our program. So there was a lot of people that came into the church. And we had about 60 to 70% that were coming to follow-up studies when we did the depression recovery program. Lots of people respond to this way of presenting things. But that's not the most significant thing that happened in the health programs. You know what's happened? My life has been changed. I need health evangelism because I need the health message, and I need to be constantly reminded of it. I remember once I was walking through the store, and we were doing a chip program, and there was this lady, and she saw me. I saw her come in, and I was in the store, and I'll just confess it to you here on Audioverse. <laughs> I had gotten some sour cream and some cheese, right? I had it, and I had it right in the cart. And I was like, I saw that, and it was not the same thing we were teaching in the chip room. And I don't think it's a sin to have sour cream and cheese. Don't get me wrong. But uh, it's not the best thing for you, right? especially if you know better and you're teaching a chip class. <laughs> so I walk in and there she is. And she goes, hey, hi, how you doing? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so I act like I don't see her. I go around the corner, you know, with my cart. And I'm going, how do I get this out? <laughs> I could not get it out. I couldn't get it out. I couldn't reach down in there because she was really close. So I just put a bunch of other things on top. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm by the cart. I put all these things on top and I'm getting stuff. And bang, I put it all in. And I should have been watching what I was doing because I was in the bean section. And I had these cans that had pork in them that I put in. I put pork and beans. And then I had cereal and Uncle Ben's all wild rice. Right? So I covered up. And I go, great, it's covered up. So she comes around. And here I am with the cart. And I'm with the cart. I go, yeah, how you doing? She goes, oh, I'm doing great, man. I just feel so good on this program. Thank you so much for it. I said, praise God. Well, i got to be running. Well, no, 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 no. I want to see what you shop for. <laughs> See, I didn't realize that, that I had caused so many problems. And you're like, uh, wild rice, oh, that's good. I'm going to get some of that. Oh, bean, bean. <laughs> Pork and beans? I thought you were the Adventist minister. I'm like, oh, that, oh. And then she finally goes, you know what, brothers and sisters? Um, be sure your sins will find you out. He who tries to cover his sins... You see what I mean? That came very... But here's the point. How did it end up? Well, I'm alive, but what I had to do was confess it all. I told her, I said, Sister, I... Uh, I felt the pull of the cheese and the queso morkins beckoned to me. I was succumbing. I believe this is a divine appointment because I'm putting it all back now. I was that close. You saved me. <laughs> I confessed it. But you see what I mean? I want to just tell you. Doing health evangelism will make you healthier. It will help you be, be better. It will set the standard. And if you do this in your church and in your life, guess what? It will help you not only believe but also behave better. How many think that's true? And God can't. So I'm going to say the thing that's helped me most about health work 
It's a joy to see people's life change. But God helps me through the health message as well each time I do something. How many can see the power of that? So I thank you for being with me. I do have a series of studies that's based on this. I think I had written down somewhere that I will give away uh, one of those. So let me give away. uh, How many would like to have that entire set of studies plus the DVDs that goes with it? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick, just a minute, you pick a number between 1 and 12, and you pick a number between 1 and 31. What's your number? 8. Eight five, that's what is that? August, what's eight? August fifth. Whose birthday is the closest? That's your birthday. Your birthday. Your birthday too. Okay, let's have you guys arm wrestle for it. (laughs) No, no, we won't have you do that. So what we're gonna do, since you both have the same birthday, is we're gonna have to marry you. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, that's wrong. That was wrong. I'm sorry. No. What we're going to do is give each of them that, okay? We'll give you each one of those. And uh, you come by my booth later, and I'll have them for you, okay? So we'll give that to you. Um, And the rest of you, (laughs) sorry. No, let me give away one more. I'll give away one more because I have three. I brought three to give away. So I'm going to, now that you're on to my secret of how I picked this, uh, boy, I don't know how to do this. Do you know how to do this? How could we do this? Okay. Draw a name. That's just an option. That's what. That's what we'll do. We'll give it away. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you were born and are still with us. Um, uh, well, uh, what's? Well, what, what do you want me to say? That I'm not glad that you're with us. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. And then you may have some questions, um, or you may want to escape. <laughs> so I don't know. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that I could just spend a few time with my brothers, a little bit of time with my brothers and sisters. And I'm thankful for your great love and for your power that uh, you give to us. You impute your righteousness to us. You impart your power to us. And you want us to live uh, changed lives, not because uh, that saves us, but because it shows others that we're being saved. Not because it, it, it commends us to you, but because you've commended yourself to us. And because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we want you to just be glorified. We want to be satisfied in you. And uh, we want to be able to just give you all the praise and the glory. We want to live a radical lives of discipleship, and we can probably do that right here, right now, as we look to every meal. And you can, uh, you can minister to others, but we don't want it to spring from a heart of legalism. We want it to spring from a heart of love and seeing what you've done from the inside out. And we thank you, and we come in Christ's name. Amen.